Hop up for 8 o'clock at the Greater 3 UZ Sammy Show for Friday night. Okay, the time is 22 before 9, 12.72 SM with Ian Macrae in the morning. For AP and Kevin Hillier, Sunday morning, out for a couple of showers later today and a top of 25. Well, it's 27 past 12 right now. This is Laurie Bennett at 2SM. At 24 to 8 with Peter Grayson, town at the moment 17 degrees. Hi, hi, Victoria. Stand the man. Hello. Hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so where we get to speak to the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. And today's guest spent 13 years as one of Melbourne's top music jocks at two of the city's most influential radio stations, but then reset his life that took him on a totally different path altogether. I'm sure you'll enjoy our chat with Chris Maxwell McGlone. More music, more music, 3XY. Hey, Chris Maxwell, welcome to Pilots and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Paul. It's good to talk to you. Well, it's fair to say we've got a heap to get through, so let's go right back to the start and those early influences that sparked your interest in radio. Uh, well, I used to love listening to the radio from a very early age, uh, all sorts of things. Um, and my parents, thankfully, had a love of music, so there was music. They had records and whatever. Um, but uh, when I first started to really become interested, of course, was in early teens, and um, Three Years Ed was probably the the major station that I listened to, and people like Stan Rofe, Don Lunn, uh, Alan Lappin, later on Ken Sparks, um, Sam Anglesey, people like that. Um, also 3XY, uh, KZ, but uh, for me, 3 Z was uh, was the station. I had at that stage no no sort of thoughts about being on air myself, but I just loved listening to, to the to the announcers and, of course, to the music. So if we were to look right back, what were some of the common words or phrases that would appear on your school report cards? <laughs> um, so much potential. Should try harder. That was probably the, <laughs> probably the most common. I'd, I'd, I didn't enjoy school very much. Uh, I was very glad when I left school, but... Uh, I had a good education and uh, very grateful for that. And I should have tried harder, but uh, what to do? Now, back in the 60s and 70s, the pathway to a career in radio was attending a radio school, then heading to the bush for that first important appointment. Was this the way that it happened for you? Yeah, definitely. Six months before I left school, I really did not have any idea what I really wanted to do, uh, planned to, and uh, took a job as in the Commonwealth Public Service. And uh, But a few months before the end of the year, before the end of the school year, uh, a good friend of mine at school was being very secretive about 
some classes that he was taking in the evening. And I finally got got it out of him, what he was up to, and he's going to Lee Murray's. And uh, I thought, radio, that sounds interesting, being a radio announcer. And it all sort of fell into place, my love of listening to radio, my love of music. And um, I started going to the classes. My mate dropped out. And uh, so I was going to Lee Murray's before I left school. And then when I uh, started work, uh, I was going there three nights a week for about a year, I guess. And at that time, still a good mate of mine, Mike Drayson was there, another good mate, Rob Grant, Colin Denovan, and a few other luminaries from from the radio days were there. And, of course, Lee Murray was responsible for a lot of uh, big names in radio and some that went on to television. Now, 3SH was a training ground for many great jocks and was, of course, the hometown of the great Barry Bissell. Did you and Barry cross paths there up on the border? No, Barry had already left. He was, we were talking about it just last week, actually, trying to work out who was where. He, he would have been in um, Launceston at that stage. But I actually married Barry's sister, Pam, in Swan Hill. So uh, Barry and I are obviously still in contact um, at family gatherings, etc. So I didn't meet him there. But, uh, of course, we worked together at... Uh, years later at XY when he came across to 3XY. But uh, Mike Drayson and Rob Grant followed me a few months afterwards up at uh, Swan Hill. Greg Smith was there doing breakfast when I moved up there. Alan Besley, who was a, a local sports personality in Bendigo up until some years ago. Uh, but it, it was a good station, and I really liked the, the people there. They were great. Well, I was only there for... It was about not quite two years because I started on my birthday, actually, in 1970 and uh, moved up to work at 2HD in very early January 73. Now, Chris, we all know that outside broadcasts can be fought with danger at the best of times, but how easy was it to lose the audience that came out to watch your OB in Tempe's sports store up there in Swan Hill? (laughs) You've heard a story. Yep. It's a, a leading question. Um, well, Tempe Sports Store, we did a, quite a few outside broadcasts there. Uh, I can't remember his first name, but uh, Mr. Templeton uh, had a sports store and it also had lots of um, general goods for farmers, etc. So it was a mixed, sort of a mixed business. And we had set ourselves up in the front window and uh, one day, all of a sudden, Everything stopped. Tempe, as he was known, shut the doors. And everybody in the street came out of their shops and stood as a funeral procession went past. It's just this very um, very beautiful tradition of uh, the locals acknowledge somebody who had passed away. And uh, meantime, there was the, um, the young jock rocking away behind the glass in the window, <laughs> not stopping for the funeral for the listeners, of course. As you said, the next move was to 2HD in Newcastle, a station steeped in history and one of the homes of the good guy format in Australia. So who were some of the guys you shared the roster with in the early 70s? Yes, I was briefly a good guy. Well, in name. Mike Drayson, uh, who I was working with at Swan Hill, got a job at 2HD and he 
uh, put in a word for me and I applied for a position up there, got a job there. So there was uh, Alan McGurvin on breakfast, the late Alan McGurvin, I used to call him because he was most often late, Mike Jeffries, Cliff Musgrave, Jeff Gregory, Mike Drazen, of course. And I was there also for about 20, 20 months, I think, not quite two years. Newcastle was, uh, it, it was, it was a, quite a hard rocking station when I got there. It was a bit of a, an eye-opener after Swan Hill. And uh, that's when I got there. By the time I left, we were playing beautiful music and crossing to the races and greyhounds. So it was rather a, rather a bizarre change over the years. And one that you didn't stick around for for too long either. Because, of course, in 73, you left 2HD, popped into 7LA in Launceston just for a few minutes, and then the big appointment at Melbourne's 3XY. Firstly, why such a short stint in Lonnie? Well, I probably, after a year of uh, being in radio at Swan Hill, out of my uh, ignorance and arrogance, I, I thought I'd start sending air checks to city radio stations. And so I quite regularly sent air checks to Sydney and Melbourne stations. Uh, I must say, Dick Hemming at 3XY was somebody who listened to my air checks and wrote two or three pages of critique with some wonderful constructive criticism. And that was quite rare because very often you, you never knew whether the air check made it or whether it was just thrown in the bin or whatever. So I'm very grateful to Dick Hemming for that. But despite all that, the number of air checks I had sent from 2HD to get to Melbourne, particularly 3XY, it wasn't that that got me the job. Apparently, John O'Donnell was driving one night, listening around to the stations, and picked up uh, 7LA and heard me on 7LA and went back to Trevor Smith the next day and said, I think you know this guy could be good for us. And so Dick Hemming rang me uh, one night when I was on air at LA, not long after the program director, who I can't remember, said to me, please stay for a while. He said, we lose so many people to the city. Can you please stay? And I said, well, I, <laughs> I can't control that, but yeah, okay. Of course, three weeks after I started, I was off to XY. It was my dream, you know, to get back to Melbourne, my hometown, and uh, to the best station in the, in the city. Chris Maxwell knows his music. He'd like to lay it on ya. He plays albums in his show. He keeps Melbourne in the know. 1422, 3XY. Of course, in the mid-70s, XY boasted an absolute powerhouse of jocks. You would have worked with some incredible people. Just a great time to be at 3XY. Yeah, well, very early in the piece, um, I got there late 73, and it was just after I started that they had their first number one survey. Uh, so it was a pretty wild time to to be there. Peter Harrison was on breakfast, great breakfast announcer, fantastic. Uh, of course, Joe Miller uh, in mornings. I think uh, John O'Donnell was doing afternoons. Mike Drazen Drive, Dick Starr or Greg Smith evenings. Late nights was John Scott back then. Trevor Smith was also doing shifts. And then later on in the piece, I'm not too sure time-wise, but uh, later on came people like uh, Lee Simon, Greg Evans, Paul Turner, Chris Hume. Yeah, so, but absolutely 
wonderfully exciting days, great radio, great people, just a wonderful experience. So let's have a look. Eight Octobers, countless concerts and a heap of promotions on the road. What were some of the highlights for you? I think um, it was 75 that John O'Donnell, who was doing the album show on Sunday night, said to me, I think you should start doing the album show. I was doing 12 to 3 in the afternoon, which was his, uh, his shift. I'm not too sure what shift he had moved to. Maybe he was... Uh, uh, acting as program director at that stage. Um, and that was, for me, a huge step. I mean, I, I just didn't feel it was something I, I could do. I thought it was too early, but he was so encouraging. And I'm forever grateful because uh, it was the most satisfying program to do. So that was 75, and I did that until I left in 1980. So doing the, the album show and the people that you would meet, I mean, some of the artists, it was just incredible. And, of course, the station was most of the time the promoting station for any concert that came through. And we'd meet meet the artists and interview them and do interviews backstage at Festival Hall. It was just many, many exciting times, great concerts and uh, meeting really wonderful artists. So as musical director at XY at the time and putting together those all-important 3XY weekly charts, you and Molly on Countdown basically dictated the listening habits of Melbourne teenagers. That's a significant say in what was flying off the shelves in Brashes and Allens. So did you realise just how influential both you and the station were at the time? Well, I'd say the station. I mean, it wasn't me. The, the charts were made up from uh, a selection of retail stores across Melbourne and we collate that each Monday. So I was responsible for putting together the information, but uh, the information feedback came from from the public. Um, but yes, XY was, uh, was extremely influential, and um, of course, much of the frustration of uh, band management. Uh, we didn't add that many new records each week. In the very early days, uh, before I was music director, the rotation system, which a lot of people hated, but it was a winning format. Uh, the highest rotation records, which were probably four or five tracks, were played every two and a half hours. Uh, the next level, every three and a half hours. And then others on the way out, or new new songs, maybe every five, seven hours. Uh, and it was a very tight format and very difficult, very frustrating for record reps and also managers uh, to get records played. So, yeah, I was very aware week to week of uh, uh, the pressure that they were under and um, how influential the station was. Okay, Chris, can you recall one song that you were convinced would have been a hit and actually flopped or one you overlooked and ultimately became a hit? Okay. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, I can remember the one that I didn't think would be a hit, Africa by Toto. I don't know what was happening to me at that time, but <laughs> anyway. Uh, and the record rep never let me forget it. Okay, and amongst all those jocks at XY, there were some really serious music heads like John O'Donnell, Barry Bissell, Peter Grayson, of course, yourself. Who would have been best on ground at a genuine music trivia night? We've got another name to chuck in there. Billy Pinnell. Billy Pinnell was... Uh, I first met Billy and worked with him at Eon FM. Billy Pinnell was at KZ when I was at... Uh, XY, 
But, uh, yeah, I put my money on Billy. So you did the whole lot at XY. You worked some mornings, afternoons, evenings, and, of course, the album show. Which shift do you think best complemented the Chris Maxwell style of broadcasting? Well, the album show, I think, uh, I enjoyed most of all. Of daytime shifts, which, uh, as it was at XY in those days, 12 to 3 in the afternoon, uh, I did that Monday to Friday, and then the album show Sunday night. And I think those two shifts, it was... uh, for me, it felt like a good match. Whether listeners agreed or not, I'm not sure. But um, I was comfortable. The format, you know, the format during the week was quite strict. Uh, but Sunday nights was pretty much open. And uh, I had free reign. Kept it fairly familiar, but also played a lot of unfamiliar new album tracks, uh, new artists, but album tracks that would never get played otherwise. And... Um, over the years, you know, people would say to me, oh, I listen to you on Sunday nights. You've introduced me to so much good music. And that I really like that because that was the spirit that I was trying to get across in the album show. Was It, it reminded me of something Trevor Smith said to me when I first got to XY. He said, just pretend you've, you've got the best record collection in the world and you want to share it with your mates. Have a listen to this. Oh, have you heard this? That sort of attitude, and that was, to me, what Sunday Night Album Show was about. Otherwise, people wouldn't have heard it. So when did you start to feel that AM radio was beginning to wane and that FM was looking like the future of music radio? Oh, 1980, before Eon started. It was becoming very obvious that uh, the direction it was all going in. Yeah, I I think it was uh, a no-brainer, really. The question was how long would it take for AM or for FM to establish and uh, what direction will the AM stations go in? But uh, FM was, was definitely the way to go and that was fairly obvious back then, I think. Rock the pages, AOA, rock the pages, AOA, rock the pages, so how did that appointment at Eon come about? Well, it was uh, a few months after they went to air and... Um, they, I think they established the station with a million dollars, which is ridiculous to think about now, but it was big money back then. And um, it wasn't that long. It was a few months later they realised that they were going to need another million dollars to keep it all going. It wasn't the fact that all of a sudden everybody was going to tune over to uh, Eon FM or even Fox when it came on air. Uh, there was a lot of work to be done. And uh, Lee Simon was at E.ON, Peter Grace, of course, uh, Trevor Smith, and uh, Clyde Simpson, manager. Clyde, I knew from XY days as a sales manager there. And uh, Lee rang me one day and he said, can we have a talk? Would you be interested in coming over? I jumped on the opportunity because it was just uh, a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to get involved with the first FM station, and not long after, we decided to tighten up the format. It was just pretty much the guys on there playing pretty much what they wanted. Not quite, but almost that. Very difficult to say what sort of audience uh, they were chasing. But the thing was, FM had finally come, and during the 70s, uh, all those interested in music on air guys, we were listening to 
American FM stations. And, of course, I think we had it in our mind, well, that's what we're going to do when we get FM. It wasn't quite like that. Australia was a different market, of course, but also times changed. You couldn't just get on and mimic that sort of format in the 80s in Australia. So we tightened up the format. It became more familiar. And, of course, for the whole team of promotions, etc., we started to gain audience and eventually being rock bottom news station became number one. Again, you were working with a great on-air team and also some radio heavyweights in the back offices, such as Bill Armstrong, Clyde Simpson, Lee Simons as your first program director. So how strong was the steely determination from everybody involved to make sure the experiment actually turned into a juggernaut? Uh, The spirit was um, incredible. Clyde Simpson, I developed a lot of respect for. As he said, he used to have to do the tap dance for the board, (laughs) keep the board happy keep the on-air people happy, keep the salespeople happy, uh, keep the ship going. But uh, every survey was celebrated, whether it was a bad one or a good one. We all got together and they were disappointing and sometimes heartbreaking. But that spirit of working towards number one, it never uh, weakened until we got there. It uh, It was a great time, great station, good people. So you were at E.ON for almost seven years, and for some of that time, your shift preceded the unpredictable Carl Van Est who followed you. The phrase different cat would not be out of place when describing the old captain. Captain Carl. Yeah, well, we had a few characters. But Captain Carl, yeah, he's a character. I have seen him a few years back, and uh, he hadn't changed much. (laughs) uh, No, he's a great character. and uh, Some good people. Uh, Gavin Wood, of course. And Joe Miller and familiar people from XY. John Peters came along, of course. John was was great to work with. Yeah, it's uh, at at all stations we have, uh, there are the obligatory characters and uh, oddballs, I guess. So after a 13-year stint on two of Melbourne's hottest radio stations, you moved from the on-air role to music research work. Now, was that a follow-your-passion sort of decision or did you need a break from behind the microphone? I needed a break. Eon was number one. The station was sold. Rod Mio bought the station. I'd worked with Paul Rod back at XY. Uh, I didn't want to work for Rod again. (laughs) Um, But I really felt that I had done all I could and wanted to do. So I left and decided to do my own thing, did a bit of music research, Later on in the piece, I worked with Jeff Campbell, who was a production guy from uh, production guy extraordinaire from XY and Eon. And Jeff and I are still good mates. Uh, he had a little studio in Elwood called McCommunique. We made some specials there, a John Farnham special, Billy Joel, bits and pieces like that. But, and, and I actually, around about that time, dropped out of the industry altogether and did quite a few other things uh, before coming back and doing shifts again and being really quite excited about being on air and just doing uh, on-air shifts. Back behind the microphone, as you said, for some casual work at the rebadged Eon, which was, of course, then Triple M, a bit of work at BFM and uh, 3MP. Was the broadcasting fire still well and truly alight through those times or was the flame starting to flicker a little bit? Well, the, the flame certainly 
was flickering when I left Eon and uh, more so over the following years. But I started to become interested again. That's when I uh, started doing those freelance shifts. I also uh, was offered a job at um, NCM Networking, uh, Tony McGinn's operation. They were producing Take 40 Australia, uh, 80 Minutes of the 80s and Roxat. And that was really exciting. Uh, I admired Tony for what he had done as much as he was hated by the record companies. Uh, it was quite revolutionary. Take 40 Australia, huge success. Roxat, an incredible program, great program to put together. Uh, very difficult with satellite connections and all that sort of thing, but really groundbreaking stuff. It wasn't, unfortunately, a job that I could ultimately uh, carry out the way they wanted. And um, so I, I think I was there less than a year, but that was uh, something yeah, it was exciting to be involved in. And uh, after that, around about that time, because after that I was doing those freelance shifts. It's all a bit hazy back then, Paul, trying to recall what we, in which order things happened, but uh, it was all there somehow in the mix. Now, the music rock and roll lifestyle, I'm sure is glamorous, but obviously for you, didn't hold all the answers. So when did you start challenging yourself and questioning the direction of your life? Um, early, very early uh, 90s for quite a few years. I guess that feeling of radio being over and done with, uh, not too sure what direction to head in, a couple of life-changing events that happened, serious bouts of depression. The 90s, early to later 90s, not such a good time. And I guess like a lot of people who go through those sorts of experiences, you start to question, you know, what what's it about? What should I do with my life and why is this happening to me? All those sorts of questions. Um, I became interested in uh, Buddhism. Uh, I was raised a Catholic, but never it was never a serious practice for me. Um, but uh, Buddhism, things started to fall into place, and there was a sense of familiarity, uh, which I couldn't quite pinpoint. So I started going to teachings at... Uh, a centre in uh, East Brighton called Tara Institute. And that was just uh, overnight, my whole life changed. And all of a sudden I was riding a wave again, but not the wave of radio, a completely different uh, wave. But it, uh, uh, the experiences beyond that were just uh, incredible, so much so that um, I ended up travelling to India a few times and, ultimately took it so seriously after studying for some time uh, that I became a Buddhist monk in the Tibetan tradition and received my monk's vows from uh, the Dalai Lama in 2004. Uh, I moved up to the monastery where I now live in 2002. And uh, since then, I've been teaching Buddhist philosophy, studying Buddhist philosophy, I did seven years of jail, chaplaincy, travelled to India, studied Tibetan language, not very successfully, and have had just the most wonderful experiences. And uh, it's been the best 
one of the best decisions of my life. Thankfully, my family, I was divorced a long, long time before that, but uh, my my kids, my son, two daughters, sister, parents, were, uh, mum, uh, were all very supportive. And, uh, yeah, I'm most fortunate. Now, there were, of course, many aspects that were seismic lifestyle changes, but how does one who spend their whole working life talking as a profession suddenly conform to the constraints of a Buddhist monastery? Well, we do talk. <laughs> we're not uh, we're not a silent order, and I guess in a way, uh, the the radio skills were put to use or are put to use with teaching, guiding people through meditations. Two thousand and four, I released a um, a book and DVD. And that was uh, remarkably, uh, it was marketed all around the world. So I got uh, all these letters from people all over the place. Uh, so the communication was still there. But yeah, I guess uh, I guess uh, standing up in front of a group of people and talking you know, similarities in radio. So at the monastery in Bendigo, are all the monks you live with all late vocations like yourself and if so, what were some of the diverse range of pre-Buddhism experiences amongst the group? Uh, well, let me have a think. We've had a mixture. The monastery was started by a monk called Gyatso, an Australian, uh, Adrian Feldman, his Western name. He was one of the very first Westerners to take ordination in Tibetan tradition. He was He graduated as a doctor with a medical degree not long after. He met uh, the Lamas in uh, in India, and not long after that, uh, took ordination. So there's someone like Kiyato, ordained for a very long time, and he's uh, here uh, with us. Others, quite young, uh, have tended not to stay ordained for very long. It's a very difficult decision to make for a Westerner because you don't get the support financial and otherwise that may be a country like uh, Thailand or Vietnam because the culture is very different. The people support the monasteries and the monks and nuns and the monks and nuns uh, look after the people with their spiritual life. In the West, we're just not used to that. So to become a monk in our tradition anyway, uh, in the West you need financial independence or a sponsor, you can work, but it's not ideal. Or you can be like me and be so old that you get uh, sponsored by the government, old age pension. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so there's been a mixture of, of people and experiences uh, from all walks of life that have come through the monastery. I'm just wondering, do you ever wish that you'd been introduced to these teachings and ideals earlier in your life, or has your journey been a collection of life experiences that have given you a more complete perspective? I was always interested in spiritual matters, I guess, and so well before I became a Buddhist, I had read about Buddhism, but it just didn't uh, uh, make much of an impact. Not, it was because I was too involved in, um, at that time, 3XY and just absolutely in love with what I was doing and also at uh, Eon FM, no reason to... Too distracted, <laughs> too distracted by what was happening. And uh, it was just uh, fantastic, exciting, uh, exciting days. But um, those experiences 
and then the experiences afterwards, not being able to see a direction that I could head in. Also, uh, those bouts of depression, which were quite crippling, all that becomes part of uh, the experience that uh, was in place when I looked at Buddhism again. And that's when it really, really hit home. So I can't say I wish I had it at any particular age because it doesn't mean anything. It may have, it, it, uh, completely different times, completely different mindset. So and what, um, what ultimately caused the occurrence to me to actually become a monk, which was quite a bizarre thought for me at that stage, was a photo of Gyatso, the monk who helped build the monastery here, appearing in the age one day. Uh, monk builds monastery in Mednigo. There's a picture of him walking up the hill. And I'd met him a few weeks before that. And as soon as I saw that photo, I knew I was going to be a monk. I didn't know how it was going to happen. But uh, I knew it was going to happen. Thankfully, it took a few years because it's not something to rush into. Of course, here on Pilots, it's all about that rearview mirror. So when you look back at your days in the 70s and 80s, what comes to mind? Is it pride, satisfaction, wasted years, or maybe just a collection of moments in time? Uh, 70s and 80s. 70s, excitement, awe, meeting all these people that I just loved their music, or in working with people like Stan Rose, who was an idol of mine on radio, and to sit in music meetings with him at XY was just a rid- <laughs> ridiculous thought. It was just wonderful. Eon, excitement again, but that sense of achievement and striving for number one and achieving it with that team of people was fantastic. Finally, Chris, in our 12 questions that we finish off with, we always ask, was there a moment that someone walked into your studio and you were suddenly starstruck? Let's bring that forward and change it to the moment that you were suddenly starstruck in the presence of another person so that you can tell us about your ordination in 2004 and meeting the Dalai Lama. The experience of meeting the Dalai Lama is, um, and I must say, I can say I've met him twice, I've spoken briefly to him, but we've never had a long conversation. There is a close relationship in that he ordained me and uh, I went there with a group of other uh, Tibetan monks and Western monks and uh, another monk who lives here at the monastery. And we went to the Dalai Lama's residence and went through the ceremony and he blessed us and we uh, carried out the ordination ceremony. And that was, uh, to say I was starstruck or awestruck, yes, absolutely. Like a lot of people, there is uh, something about the Dalai Lama which uh, is very difficult to put into words. People uh, walk away awestruck. People walk away in tears. Uh, people walk away just almost floating. There is a presence there which is very special. And that, for me, that receiving ordination and those circumstances was uh, just one of the greatest moments of my life. The Dalai Lama came and visited here at the monastery. Uh, near the monastery, we have uh, uh, a project called the Great Stupa. Um, and he came to uh, bless the foundations because that's all there was at that stage, 2007, I think it was. 
And I had the uh, role of greeting him at the when he got off the helicopter and walking him across to the stupa. And uh, he was asking me questions about who's this, what's that. And so we had a brief conversation then. So that's as far as, as deep as our conversations got. <laughs> so I could say I've met him twice, but uh, no great conversations, but some wonderful experiences. Rock of Ages Eon FM with Heart from 77, Barracuda, 21 minutes to three with Chris Maxwell after three o'clock. Carl is here and getting into the weekend. Whatever you're doing, I hope you have a great weekend. Okay, Chris, time now for our 12 questions. First one being, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? Uh, that's easy. Second day at Eon FM. News came through about lunchtime, I get from memory. So it was a Tuesday for us, Monday in New York. Yeah, uh, everybody was stunned. We made the decision to drop the format completely. I don't know if we stopped advertising. <laughs> what a heart attack for the sales manager, but we may have. Uh, but we decided to play John Lennon songs, alternating with... Beatles songs that were recognised as John Lennon songs. And so we did that, I think, maybe for 24 hours. And I think there was what more to do, you know, interspersed with uh, updates and uh, uh, interviews with different people, I think Molly and uh, people like that and uh, Glenn Baker, overseas people. Um, yes, so second day of the NIFM, uh, a day to remember. The last concert ticket you paid for? Uh, that would have been Phil Collins' most recent tour. Yep, and I know it was a pretty special one too. Concert eight that you regret never seeing? Uh, quite a few, obviously, from very early days. I mean, Hendrix and Cream, etc. But uh, later on, I would say Little Feet. I would love to have seen Little Feet. But uh, they did tour, but I think I must have been working that time. That word you had most trouble pronouncing on air? <laughs> And I'm going to have to say it. <laughs> rural. I didn't do too badly, did I? No. Um, rural. I always used to drop it and just say country. <laughs> it's just so such a tough one. Yes, and you're not the first guest to have trouble with that rural word. Uh, was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking you might get those don't come Monday orders? Yeah, there was. The other announcer in the station will remain nameless. But uh, we were having a conversation. He was on air. We were having a conversation in the studio. And he had his monitor turned down. And, of course, he didn't realise he had his microphone turned on. And, uh, unfortunately, the uh, conversation was rather dominant over the music, apparently. Uh, it wasn't anything too bad, but um, not, not, not something that should have gone to air or should have happened. But I didn't lose a job over that. Skyhooks or Sherbert? Skyhooks. Um, such a unique band. Uh, presentation, personalities, music, uh, songs about Melbourne, uh, Shirley up front. Yeah, Skyhooks. Rolling Stones or The Beatles? Um, this is a really tough one. With apologies to my 1964 self, I'll say The Stones, definitely. Chris, do you have a most treasured piece of memorabilia from your early radio days? 
Um, not much memorabilia. Well, memorabilia, I think photos. I've got a lot of photos from XY and Eon days. And um, I think they're the most treasured, you know, to look back at those. Can you recall the biggest news story that broke while you were on air? Biggest news story was uh, November 1975, the dismissal. Um, I was on air at uh, XY, I think probably 12 to 3. Paul Syme, wonderful newsreader, wonderful voice at XY. He came in and read the news. He was almost in tears. <laughs> I, I wasn't so much into politics, but uh, he was so upset. And, uh, of course, so many other people were too. But, yeah, uh, the dismissal. Best words of advice from a program manager? Be yourself. Uh, a little cliche, but I think the best advice, especially I think uh, many people in the early stages of careers, you you have your heroes, people you looked up to, people that you inspired you and possibly attempt occasionally to sound like them. Um, the thing is, if you do, you're probably never going to be better than them. You may equal them, but if you yourself, you may far exceed what they did. And overall, be yourself. Best advice. Chris, the two albums that you'd consider to be the soundtrack of your teenage years? Um, I'd have to say Sgt Pepper's. It was just such a mind-blowing album for the time and uh, 67, that time of my life. What I mean, such great music. So uh, Sgt Pepper's and uh, Cream live at the Fillmore. I played and played and played and played and air guitar too. I think I wore it out. I had to buy it a couple of times. Just finally, just picking up on that last point, uh, what part, if any, does music play in your life these days, any sort of music at all? Well, I have my own collection of music, and I, I do listen to music driving, and I do listen to music at night time. Uh, it's not something that I can uh, let go of. It's just too, too big a part of my life. Um, uh, I've always loved jazz. From the very first time I heard my older sister's record she brought home, Take Five by Dave Brubeck. Um, so I've always uh, loved jazz and I probably listen to more jazz than uh, most things these days. But uh, commercial radio, I, I can't get interested in. I listen to Radio Paradise uh, on the internet. Great, great uh, uh, program station and um, and my own my own music but yeah it's still for me an important part of my life uh, as more stricter uh, teachers of mine would say it's an attachment you need to let go of <laughs> it's uh, too big an attachment I'll admit to and uh, uh, yeah just too much a part of my life to not to not listen to music well, Chris, thanks so much for sharing your story with us today. It is unique. It's absolutely fascinating to an outsider like me, and I'm sure it's been enjoyed by the listening audience. Best of luck with what comes next, and again, thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you, Paul, and I, I appreciate you calling me and asking. It's been great.